Hello, and welcome to the History of the Church of Jesus Christ. Episode 22, Accelerating Change in America, Part 2, The Colonies. By the time James I ascended to the English throne in 1603, groups of people referred to as Puritans had risen up to display their displeasure with the way the Church of England was run. Many thought it should be more Protestant. Most Puritans sought to reform the Church, to purify it. Just one year after becoming king, James I decided to call the Hampton Court Conference, in which he heard, for the Purit heard from four prominent Puritan leaders. Though he sided with his bishops, James's actions led to the Puritans gaining a greater sense that they were a force to be reckoned with. The famous William Bradshaw, who adopted the term Puritan for himself, began writing during this period of English history, leading to the emergence of semi-separatism, or moderate Puritanism. Congregationalism has its beginnings during this time as well. There is also a small group of separatists, though very few in number. Puritans embraced Calvinism, or Reformed theology, with its opposition to ritual and an emphasis on preaching and observing the Sabbath day, and a preference for the Presbyterian system of church rule, as opposed to the Episcopal rule of the Church of England, meaning that they preferred councils of elders as opposed to one single ruling bishop. They also resented that the Church of England had also preserved medieval canon law, almost intact. They opposed church practices that resembled Roman Catholic ritual. A few separatist Puritans took to the seas. These would become known as the Pilgrims. They boarded a ship owned by a certain Christopher Jones. The ship, like many of its day, was christened Mayflower. Though its name was commonplace during James I's reign, it would become legendary in American history. Just over one-third of its passengers were Puritan separatists. Others were hired hands, servants, or farmers recruited by London merchants. Four were children given in, into the care of Mayflower pilgrims as indentured servants. Approximately 65 passengers embarked on the, the Mayflower in the middle of July 1620 on the River Thames. The ship anchored on the south coast of England. She waited there for a rendezvous on July 22nd with the Speedwell, which was coming from Holland with English separatist Puritans members of the Leyden congregation who had been living in Holland to escape religious persecution in England. Around August 5th, both, both ships left, set sail for, for America. Quickly, the Speedwell sprained a leak. They stopped for repairs. Speedwell sprained another leak, this time more than 200 miles or 320 kilometers beyond Land's End at the southwestern tip of England. A decision had to be made. The Speedwell was abandoned after the two ships returned to Plymouth. England. Some of the Speedwell pilgrims joined the Mayflower, and others, disheartened, returned to the Netherlands. The passengers of the Mayflower stayed aboard the ship for days while provisions ran low. These days drew into more than a month's delay. The exhausted people aboard the ship were in no condition to make a long Atlantic journey in such a small ship. But, despite all this, the Mayflower, now carrying 102 passengers and 25 to 30 crewmen, set sail on September 6, 1620. 
The western gales and huge waves constantly crashing against the ship's topside deck made for a difficult journey. At one point, a support timber was broken due to the abuse of the waves. The tired and hungry pilgrims were called upon to help a carpenter repair the support beam. They rigged the ship so that it wouldn't break further and continued on. Time seemed to drag on as it was measured by an hourglass. On November 9th, they sighted present-day Cape Cod in Massachusetts, but their destination was a colony of Virginia, where they had, had permission to, to settle. The strong winter seas gave them no other option than to harbor at Cape Cod. The pilgrims aboard the Mayflower knew that it would be unwise to continue their journey without supplies. They decided that they should settle where they were. But the strangers, as the pilgrims called the non-Puritans, proclaimed that they would, they quote, would use their own liberty, for none had power to command them, end quote. Afraid of this, the pilgrims decided to establish their own government, while affirm, affirming their allegiance to the crown of England. They wrote up a compact, called the Mayflower Compact. Historian Nathaniel Philbrick writes, quote, just as a spiritual covenant had marked the beginning of their congregation in Leiden, in the Netherlands, a civil covenant would provide the basis for a secular government in America. End quote. The original document is long since lost, but one of its signers, William Bradford, wrote a copy of it in his journal. He would later become the governor of Plymouth Colony. The Mayflower, Mayflower Compact reads, quote, In the name of God, Amen. We, whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign lord, King James, by the grace of God of, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith, and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to the plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents, solemnly and mutually, in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body, politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends for aforesaid. And by virtue hereof do enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and officers, from time to time I shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. In witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names at Cape Cod the 11th of November in the reign of our Sovereign Lord King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland the 44th, Anno Domini 1620, end quote. Forty-one male passengers signed the document. Many American families can trace their lineage back to these 41 men, among whom was William Bradford. The Mayflower Compact serves to establish legal order and quell increasing strife within the ranks of the passengers. It remains an important document in American history. On Monday, November 27th, an exploring expedition was launched under the direction of Captain Christopher Jones to search for a suitable settlement site. As master of the Mayflower, Jones was not required to assist in the search, but he apparently thought it in his best interest to assist the search expedition. Before he was governor, William Bradford was a volunteer. He and some others explored the area for a place to settle. In mid-December, they found Plymouth Harbor and decided that it was the place that they should settle. The passengers of the Mayflower sailed as close as they could to the location, then made landfall. Wet and cold from the waves and wind, 
They began their settlement, today the downtown area of Plymouth, Massachusetts, on a prominent hill near several freshwater brooks. It had previously been the location for a Wampanoag village called Patuxet, meaning that the area had been already been cleared for farming. The Patuxet tribe had already been wiped out by plagues, possibly as a result of contact with English fishermen or French explorers. Bradford wrote that the bones of the dead were clearly evident in many places. It must have been a harrowing sight. Conflict with the local natives quickly arose. Nathan Philbrick claims that this was because the settlers dug in artificial mounds, which turned out to be food storage and or burial grounds. During the first winter, most of the pilgrims stayed on board the ship and suffered from a contagious disease described as a mixture of scurvy, pneumonia, and tuberculosis. By the time they disembarked from the Mayflower on March 21, 1621, there were only 53 passengers left. A month earlier, the Plymouth settlement was established. On April 5th, Christopher Jones and the Mayflower and its skeleton crew set sail for England. It arrived in England a month later. A day after the Mayflower was emptied, a native man named Massasoit appeared among the pilgrims. He was a Sachem, the leader of the Wampanoag tribe. He met with, the, with Governor John Carver, and then they negotiated a peace treaty. Massasoit and the Wampanoags would turn out, turn out to be a godsend for the early pilgrims, preventing them from starving to death by supplying food and teaching methods of planting. Earlier, a Patuxet native named Squanto had helped broker peace between the pilgrims and local Poconoquets. Because he spoke English, he was able to translate for both parties. He introduced the settlers to the fur trade and taught them how to sow and fertilize native crops. This was essential because the English crops largely failed. Squanto even boarded a ship with some settlers to explore the area, as food shortages increased. Unfortunately, Squanto grew sick and died during this December expedition. William Bradford mourned his death as a great loss. Thanks to Squanto, Massasoit, and countless unnamed natives who helped the settlers, the Plymouth colony survived its first year. In November 1621, the first Thanksgiving was held in honor of these natives and of the survival of the colony, though there is no evidence from Bradford of an actual harvest festival with the native allies. According to Winslow, this first Thanksgiving was the time of recreation and brotherhood in which the natives joined in, including Massasoit and 90 of his men. But this good feeling did not last long. There was a cold war with the Narragansetts, and at one point, Massasoit and the pilgrims turned on one another. The situation was diffused after Massasoit was nursed back to health after a grave disease in March 1623. Because of the settlers' aid, Massasoit reportedly de declared that, quote, The English are my friends and love me. While whilst I live, I will never forget this kindness that they have showed me. End quote. Massasoit would later warn the settlers of a Massachusetts plot against them. Over time, the settlers expanded, encroaching on native lands. Massasoit died, and one of his sons, Medicom, known to the settlers by the English name Philip, began, became Sachem in 1662. He would be involved in King Philip's War later on. Plymouth Colony, reduced to 50 people in April 1621, grew to 1885 by that November, and then to 180 by July 1623, thanks to the arrival of two more ships with people and supplies. By 1630, there were nearly 300 settlers in the Plymouth Colony, and by the time it merged with the Massachusetts Bay Colony, there were approximately 7,000 settlers. 
Back in England, religious conflict grew after Charles I became king in 1625. There was also a civil war on the horizon as England was divided ideologically between King Charles and the Parliament. In 1629, Charles indefinitely dissolved Parliament, which had many Puritans amongst its ranks. Many decided that enough was enough and it was time to leave England. Many of these crossed the channel to live in the separatist communities in the Netherlands. Others looked west. A wealthy group of Puritan leaders obtained a royal charter in March of that year to colonize what we know today as the Massachusetts Bay. The Massachusetts Bay colony, after a rocky start in the 1620s, grew to about 20,000 at the end of the 1630s. This huge movement was known as the Great Migration. The colonists were mo mostly Puritan, and they were overseen by a small group of secular leaders and different Puritan religious leaders. The governors of this colony could only be free men who were approved by the, Massachusetts, by the church leaders and elected by the people, at least some of the people. Because the Massachusetts Bay Colony was pu so Puritan, it was intolerant towards Anglicans, Quakers, and Baptists. The English Civil War brought an end to the Great Migration of the Puritans. Religious diversity in New England, as the Northeast region of the future United States would come to be called, came about as certain preachers diverged from the norm and formed their own theologies and their own followings. John Cotton, a Massachusetts, Massachusetts Bay minister, de-emphasized works in favor of grace. He placed more emphasis on the transforming character of the moment of religious conversion in which a mortal man is infused with divine grace. In 1633, Cotton fled the hot persecution of England for the new, for the new world. He arrived in Massachusetts on the same ship as Thomas Hooker and Edward Hutchinson, the oldest son of Anne Hutchinson. Hooker and Cotton were the first famous Puritan preachers to come to New England, and were warmly welcomed by the settlement of Boston. They preached in the small and windowless Boston Meeting House. Cotton's evangelical fervor contributed to a religious revival. He was also the first to incorporate the idea of millennialism in New England. Millennialism is a belief that there will be a time, specifically a millennium, or 1,000 years, in which Satan would be bound and there would be paradise on earth. There are three schools of thought in millennialism. First is premillennialism. It sees the second coming of Christ as happening before the millennium. In this view, Christ would reign physically upon the earth. The second is postmillennialism. It sees that Christ's second coming would be after the millennium so Christ would reign spiritually through the church. Third is amillennialism. It sees the millennium as symbolic, that there won't be a literal 1,000-year kingdom. Christ's reign is already happening through, through the church in amillennialism. In 1631, a new preacher came into town. Roger Williams was offered the position of a teacher in the Boston church, but he believed that it was not separated enough from the Church of England. He opted instead to go to the more radical Salem Church, also in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He soon became Salem's minister. Williams and Cotton did not agree on theology or matters of religious toleration and separatism. Williams was such a thorn in the side of the Massachusetts ma magistrates that by 1635 they decided to ship him back to England. He slipped away into the wilderness and established Providence Plantations in modern-day Rhode Island. This new colony was to be a refuge offering what Williams called liberty of conscience. In this new settlement, newcomers would be given full citizenship by a majority vote, and the government was restricted to civil matters. 
Thus, Williams had founded the first place in modern history where citizenship and religion were separate, providing both religious liberty and separation of church and state. Meanwhile, back in Boston, John Conn's theology of dependence on God drew many followers, including Anne Hutchinson. Her brother-in-law arrived in the colony in 1636 and was the only other minister who agreed with the Khan that man was totally dependent on God for salvation, that works could not save mankind. Anne Hutchinson and others began to question, then criticize, then challenge the Orthodox ministers in the colony. The ministers warned future governor John Winthrop of religious unrest, which they blamed on Hutchinson. In October 1636, the ministers tried to talk some sense into Cotton, Hutchinson, and others. They came to an agreement that was only temporary. Once Cotton and Hutchinson returned to their old ways of preaching, they were branded as heretics and antinomians. Antinomianism means against the oppose, against or opposed the, to the law. And the, theologically means that a person considers himself not bound to obey any moral or spiritual law. Many began to fear a schism, causing a colony-wide fast in 1637. By March of that year, the tide began to turn on Cotton, Hutchinson, and the other free grace advocates. In a nine-hour session, Hutchinson was questioned before the clergy and the congregation at the Boston Church. They insisted that Cotton talk some sense into her. By then, Cotton had convinced the people that he was their ally, and so they used him against Hutchinson. He admonished her to fall into line, like he did. After the trial was over, Cotton had her stay in his home, where Reverend John Davenport was also lodging. Davenport and Cotton worked with Hutchinson until the next meeting before the people of Boston, in which she recanted her statements and admitted her beliefs were wrong. But the questioning continued, and she began to lie, her defense unraveling. Cotton motioned that he had given up on her, and an order of excommunication was read. She would go on to leave Boston with her followers and establish a settlement of Portsmouth in modern Rhode Island. When Massachusetts threatened to take over Rhode Island, she, now a widow, moved to the Dutch lands of New Netherlands. She and her, her younger children settled near an ancient landmark called Split Rock in what would later become the Bronx in New York City. She and her, all of her children, except for one, were massacred by natives during a war, not to be confused with the Pequot War. As the Pequot War broke out in New England, the colonies were engulfed in war. All save for Providence Plantations, led by Roger Williams, which had good relations with the natives. However, the other New England colonies began to fear and mistrust the Narragansetts, which began to regard the Rhode Island colony as a common enemy. In the next three decades, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Plymouth exerted pressure to destroy both Rhode Island and the Narragansetts. In 1643, the neighboring colonies formed a military alliance called the United Colonies, which pointedly excluded the towns around Narragansett Bay. The object was to put an end to the, the heretic settlements, as they were considered an infection. In response, Williams traveled to England to secure a, ch a charter for the new colony. He did so in 1644. Rhode Island became a chartered colony and could not be destroyed by Massachusetts without royal retribution. In 1652, slavery was outlawed in Rhode Island, as opposed to Massachusetts, which made slavery, slavery legal in 1641. Newport became the hub for commerce and politics in Rhode Island. After Williams died, however, it also became the leading trading port for American ships carrying slaves, 
in the colonial American triangular trade until the Revolutionary War. John Wheelwright, Anne Hutchinson's brother-in-law, who arrived in Massachusetts in 1636, was also banished during the Antiminian controversy. Instead of heading southwest with Anne, he had went north to found the settlement of Exeter, in which what would become the province of New Hampshire. Again, Massachusetts tried to take over. Wheelwright was forced to head east to Wells in modern-day Maine. Established in 1629, the towns that would become New Hampshire remained under Mass the Massachusetts umbrella until 1679, when a royal charter established New Hampshire as its own colony. Just a year after Wheelwright arrived in New England, the New Haven colony was established in 1637. It existed alongside the colony of Connecticut, which quickly took it over. New Haven had never received a charter, while Connecticut did. Connecticut quickly incorporated all of New Haven. By 1664, all of the towns in the New Haven colony submitted to their new overlords and became part of the larger colony of Connecticut. Connecticut was also established in 1636 by Thomas Hooker, who didn't agree with the Puritans in Massachusetts. Though still a Puritan state, the colony of Connecticut offered some variety as opposed to Massachusetts Bay. There were some initial struggles with the Dutch, and later the Pequot War would devastate the area. The Saybrook Colony was merged with Connecticut in 1644. Hartford would become the hub for Connecticut. From 1686 to 1689, New England, as well as part of New York and New Jersey, were united into the Dominion of New England. These, the colonial charters for these colonies, if the colonies affected, were revoked, and Governor Sir Edmund Andros was sent to enforce changes. The Church of England was introduced to Massachusetts as part of the change. The Dominion encompassed a very large area from the Delaware River in the south to the Penobscot Bay in the north. Com com composed of the province of New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay Colony, Colony of Rhode Island, and Providence Plantations, Connecticut Colony, Province of New York, and Province of New Jersey, plus a small portion of Maine. It was too large for one, co one governor to manage, and Andros became very unpopular. As soon as King James II was forced to abdicate during the Glorious Revolution in England, a revolt broke out in Boston that arrested Andros and his officers. Another rebellion, this time in New York, deposed the Dominion's lieutenant governor. The new joint English monarchs, William and Mary, granted charters to all the provinces, even those that operated without a charter previously. King William's War broke out the year that the Dominion was done away with, 1688. This, the war was known as the Nine Years' War back in England. It pitted France and New France against England and New England. It, it began as border disputes, and when it was over in, 16, in 1693, a new threat came to New England, specifically in Salem, Massachusetts. The infamous Salem Witch Trials broke out as fear and anxiety over the supernatural increased dramatically. People thought that their neighbors, and even family members, could be witches that worked with Satan to torment the accuser. Men, women, and children were accused of being witches. More than 200 people were accused, 19 of which were executed by hanging. One man was pressed to death, and five more died in prison. This was the deadliest witch hunt in the history of the United States and remains one of, the co one of colonial America's most notorious cases of mass hysteria. According to historian George Lincoln Burr, quote, the Salem witchcraft was a rock on which the theocracy shattered, end quote. 
After the Salem Witch Trials, colonial America, shocked at the negative effects of theocracy in practice, began to distance itself from it. Alan Menke's Unobscured podcast covers the Salem Witch Trials in great depth, and I highly recommend it. He's the same guy who produced the award-winning podcast Lore and Cabinet of Curiosities. Feel free to check them out. Over time, the Puritans in England broke up into smaller groups. Religious confusion reigned as interpretations of scriptures differed and opposed one another. During and after the English Civil War, 1642 through 1651, more dissenting Christian groups emerged. One young man named George Fox was not satisfied with the teachings of the Church of England and other groups. He had a revelation that there was the quote, "There is one, even Christ Jesus, who can speak to thy condition." End quote. He became convinced that it was possible to have a direct experience of Christ without the aid of an ordained clergy. Then. On Pendle Hill in Lancashire, England, he had a vision in which, quote, the Lord let me see what places he had a great, great people to be gathered, end quote. He began to preach what became a new faith to the people of England, the Netherlands, and Barbados. His followers considered themselves to be the, to be the restoration of the true Christian church after centuries of apostasy in the churches of, in England. In 1650, Fox was brought before the magistrates, Jervase Bennett and Nathaniel Barton, on a, on a charge of religious blasphemy. According to George Fox's autobiography, Bennett, quote, was the first that called us Quakers, because I bade them tremble at the word of the Lord, end quote. The Quakers became a large group as their numbers swelled to 60,000 in England and Wales by 1680. Quakers also described themselves using the terms such as true Christianity, saints, children of the light, and friends of the truth, reflecting terms used in the New Testament by members of the early Christian church. In 1662, Parliament passed the Quaker Act, which put in place an official persecution. This persecution continued until the Act of Toleration in 1689. The Quakers fled to New England, where they hoped for toleration. They did not find it there. The persecution of Quakers in North America began in 1656, when English Quaker missionaries Mary Fisher and Anne Austin began preaching in Boston. They were considered heretics, imprisoned, and banished. Their books were burned and their property confiscated. In 1660, Mary Dyer was hanged in the Boston Common for being a Quaker. She and three others became known as the Boston Martyrs, as they refused to change their Quaker ways. Just a year later, Charles II forbid Massachusetts from executing any more Quakers. Some Quakers found refuge in Rhode Island, but the majority went to New Jersey and Pennsylvania. In 1664, in the aftermath of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, the Dutch province of New Netherland in, New York, in America was given by King Charles II to his brother James, Duke of York. New Netherland was named New York and given colonial status. New York was one of the middle colonies, along with New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was founded by William Penn in 16, 1682. Penn was well respected by the natives in the area of this colony. Beginning with a treaty between Penn and Tammany, leader of the Delaware tribe, peace between the Quakers and Native Americans would last until Penn's Creek Massacre of 1755. In 1682, Penn founded the city of Philadelphia to serve as the capital of Pennsylvania colony. It would prove to be instrumental in the American Revolution. A lower part of Pennsylvania would break away 
closer to the revolution and become the state of Delaware. The province of New Jersey was at first divided into East and West Jersey until they were united as one royal colony in 1702. The border of New Jersey wasn't finalized until 1773, as there were disputes with New York. The middle colonies had lots of fertile soil, which allowed the area to become a major exporter of wheat and other grains. The lumber and shipbuilding industries enjoyed success in the middle colonies because of the abundant forests, and Pennsylvania saw moderate success in the textile and iron industry. The middle colonies were also the most diverse, with settlers from England, Scotland, Ireland, the Netherlands, and the German states. Freedom of religion complemented this diversity, creating a fairly unique situation. Religious diversity would be a key factor in the story of Joseph Smith and his childhood in upstate New York in the early 1800s. The southern colonies of Maryland, Virginia, North and South Carolina, and Georgia do not play a huge role in the history of the early Church of Christ, organized by Joseph Smith. Maryland was founded in 1632 as a proprietary colony of the English Lord Baltimore, who wished to create a haven for English Catholics in the New World. This was during a time of great religious strife between Protestants and Catholics. A Puritan rebellion took Baltimore out of power, though the family regained control in in 1715, when Charles Calvert insisted publicly that he was Protestant. Indentured servitude and the transportation of prisoners supplemented the influx of settlers. Then, chattel slavery was introduced as as Africans were brought to North America to work in the tobacco fields. The same thing happened in Virginia, which we discussed in the last episode. Virginia extended from from the Atlantic to the Mississippi, claiming all the land north of North Carolina and south of the Ohio River. The province of Carolina lasted from 1629 until 1712. At its greatest extent, Carolina covered everything from the Atlantic to the Mississippi, including parts of Florida and Louisiana. It was meant to serve as a buffer against Spanish Florida. In 1669, the Fundamental Constitutions of Carolina divided the colony of Carolina into two provinces, Albemarle Province in the north and Clarendon Province in the south. In 1712, the two provinces became separate colonies, which became royal colonies of Great Britain in 1729. Finally, Georgia was established in 1732, when a corporate charter was granted to General James Oglethorpe by King George II. It became the new buffer between the other British colonies and Spanish Florida. Oglethorpe envisioned Georgia as a safe haven for debtors and a colony without slavery. The slavery ban was lifted in 1751, and it became a royal colony a year later. A phenomenon swept through Britain and the 13 colonies between the 1730s and 1740s. It is known today as the Great Awakening, or the Evangelical Revival. This revival movement permanently affected Protestantism. In the early 18th century, the 13 colonies were religiously diverse. In New England, the congregational churches were established religion, whereas in the religiously tolerant middle colonies, the Quakers, Dutch Reformed, Anglican, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Congregational, and Baptist churches all competed with each other on equal terms. In the southern colonies, the Anglican church was officially established, though there were significant numbers of Baptists, Quakers, and Presbyterians. Church attendance was low, however, due to the influence of Enlightenment rationalism. People were turning to atheism, deism, Unitarianism, and Universalism. Ministers began to call for a revival of religion and piety, combining New England Puritanism, Scots-Irish Presbyterianism, 
and Protestantism and European Pietism. The blending of these three traditions would produce an evangelical Protestantism that placed greater importance, quote, on seasons of revival or outpourings of the Holy Spirit and on converted sinners experiencing God's love personally, end quote. The most influential evangelical revival was the Northampton Revival of 1734 to 1735 under the leadership of Congregational Minister Jonathan Edwards. He preached a sermon entitled, quote, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, end quote. Most of the sermon's context consists of ten considerations. One, God may cast wicked men into hell at any given moment. Two, the wicked deserve to be cast into hell. Divine justice does not prevent God from destroying the wicked at any moment. Three, the wicked at this moment suffer under God's condemnation to hell. Four, the wicked on earth at this very moment suffer a sample of the torments of hell. The wicked must not think, simply because they are not physically in hell, that God, in whose hand the wicked now reside, is not at this very moment as angry with them as he is with those miserable creatures he is now tormenting in hell, and who at this moment do feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath. 5. At any moment God shall permit him, Satan stands ready to fall upon the wicked and seize him as his own. 6. If it were not for God's restraints, there are in the souls of wicked men hellish principles reigning, which presently would kindle and flame out into hellfire. 7. Simply because there are not visible means of death before them at any given moment, the wicked should not feel secure. 8. Simply because it is natural to care for oneself or to think others may care for them, men should not think themselves safe from God's wrath. 9. All wicked men may do the... All that wicked men may do to save themselves from God's plans shall afford them nothing if they continue to reject Christ. And 10. God has never promised to save us from hell except for those contained in Christ through the covenant, through the covenant of grace. Edwards was interrupted many times during the sermon by people moaning and crying out, quote, What shall I do to be saved? End quote. Although the sermon has, been, has received criticism, Edwards' war- words have endured and are still read to this day. Edward's sermon continues to be the leading example of a Great Awakening sermon, and is still used in religious and academic studies. The revival ultimately spread to 25 communities in western Massachusetts and in central Connecticut, until it began to wane in 1737. Edward's wor- words to Boston minister Benjamin Coleman show how the Great Awakening affected the people of New Ham- Northampton. He wrote that the town, quote, never was so full of love, nor so full of joy, nor so full of distress as it has been lately. I never saw the Christian spirit and love to enemies so exemplified in all my life as I have seen it with this half year. End quote. In 1738, a prominent British evangelical revival preacher named George Whitefield came to America. He preached in Georgia and founded an orphanage. He later went to Philadelphia and preached in the local Anglican church and to a large outdoor crowd. He did the same in New York, and he was popular all over the 13 colonies, even among the Dutch and German communities. People like Whitefield and Edwards revitalized Protestantism in the 13 colonies. A schism arose between the old lights, or opponents of the awakening, and the new lights, those who embraced it. Congregations were divided between those who thought revivals were good and the only way to true conversion, and those who thought it was all nonsense that the status quo was sufficient. The Baptists benefited the most from the Great Awakening. 
Numerically small before the outbreak of revival, Baptist churches experienced growth during the last half of the 18th century. By 1804, there were over 300 Baptist churches in New England. This growth was primarily due to an influx of former New Light Congregationalists who became convinced of Baptist doctrines, such as believers' baptism, and in some cases, entire separatist congregations accepted Baptist beliefs as a body. Methodism also took off during this time as a revival movement within the Church of England headed by John Wesley and his brother Charles. George Whitefield also played a major role in the leaders as leaders of the Methodist movement. Methodism focused on sanctification and the effect of faith on the character of a Christian. Distinguishing Methodist doctrines include the new birth, the assurance of salvation, imparted righteousness, the possibility of perfection and love, the works of piety, and the primacy of Scripture. Most Methodists teach that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for all humanity, and that salvation is available for, for all. Many slaves formed black churches in the Methodist tradition. Historian John Howard Smith noted that the Great Awakening made sectarianism an essential characteristic of American Christianity. While the Great Awakening divided many Protestant churches between old lights and new lights, it also unleashed a strong impulse towards interdenominational uni unity among the various Protestant denominations. Evangelicals considered the new birth to be, quote, a bond of fellowship that transcended disagreements on fine points of doctrine and piety and polity, end quote, allowing Anglicans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and others to cooperate across denominational lines. To end today's episode, I will briefly examine a few colonial wars. The War of Spanish Succession, called Queen Anne's War in North American colonies, was the second of the French and Indian Wars that broke out in North America. The first was King William's War. The Queen Anne's War was fought in Spanish Florida and Carolina, and in New England and Canada. Quebec City was a constant target for British expeditions, and the British took the Acadian capital, Port Royal, in 1710. In 1713, the Treaty of Utrecht ended the war. France ceded the territories of Hudson Bay, Acadia, and Newfoundland to Britain. Some of the terms of the treaty were ambiguous, leading to future wars. The War of Austrian Succession, or King George's War, was fought in North America from 1744 to 1748. It took place mostly in New York, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Nova Scotia. The British made gains but lost them in the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle in 1748. Between 1756 and 1763, there was a great global conflict that would be could be described as a world war. The Seven Years' War had many belligerents on, both front on many fronts. On one side was Great Britain, which controlled Ireland and British America, Hanover, Prussia, Portugal, which controlled Brazil, a couple and a couple more German states, and the Iroquois Confederacy. On the opposing side was France and New and French America, the Holy Roman Empire, which included Austria and Saxony, Russia, Spain and New Spain, Sweden, the Mughal Empire in India, the Abenaki Confederacy, and the Bengal Sultanate. The war was fought in Europe, North America, South America, India, and West Africa. In India, the French and British trading companies fought for dominance for the subcontinent. 
Despite the backing of the Mughal Empire, the British knocked the French out of the reign, eliminating fr French power in India. The British sent expeditions to capture French holdings in West Africa, further weakening the French economy. In North America, the Seven Years' War was known as the French and Indian War, and it was fought between the British colonists and the French colonists, with Native Americans on either side of the conflict. The first shots of the North American front of the Seven Years' War were fired by a British colonial militia in modern Pennsylvania, led by a young George Washington. It was an ambush, and ten, British sold ten French soldiers were killed, including their commander. When news of this, of this reached Europe, Britain and France began to sought to negotiate a solution. They were not successful. After that ambush in 1754, the fighting seemed to be contained on the other side of the Atlantic. But in 1756, fighting began in Europe, and the Seven Years' War had begun in earnest. Unfortunately, a discussion of the details of the war would take a very long time, so I must skip to the end. By 1763, the war had devastated Central Europe. The Treaty of Paris, signed that year between Britain and France, ended the war in North America. Louisiana Territory, which comprised a massive chunk of North America, was ceded to Spain, while the rest of New France was taken by Britain. With the exception of a few islands in the Caribbean, France had effectively lost control of North America. The Mississippi River di divided the British holdings from the Spanish. In India, Britain returned all of the French training posts on the condition that their forts would be destroyed and never rebuilt. Thus, in a military sense, the French presence in India was useless. This allowed Britain to eventually gain complete control over the entire subcontinent. For years, France's navy would be crippled and Britain's would be unmatched. For some theorized that Britain's gains would cause envy among the other European powers, discouraging them from supporting Britain in the future. Sure enough, when war broke out between the American colonists and their mother country, no support came from the European continent. Thanks to the Seven Years' War, Britain found itself isolated from the rest of Europe politically, nearly as much as it had been ge geographically for human history. This would prove to be problematic when the American Revolution came knocking. The French and Indian War, as we will see next time, created the conditions for the colonists in the 13 colonies to seek independence from their mother country. But that is for the next episode. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at mhistorypod at gmail.com. Next time we will, see, we will set the stage for the life of Joseph Smith and the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ by briefly looking at the American Revolution and early American history, including the Second Great Awakening, which prepared the way for Joseph Smith to wonder which church he should join. Thanks for listening. This has been the History of the Church of Jesus Christ.